All right, everybody. I've been told it is hard to get you to quiet down. So that wasn't so bad. Um, good morning. Happy Father's Day, as Brant said. Um, I think last year at Father's Day, my son, I have three sons, my youngest, Ford, wrote me a card that said, Happy Father's Day, Dad. I love you. Keep going. <laughs> so if you hear nothing more this morning, men in the room, take that charge. Keep going. Uh, yeah, wow. So uh, we're spending the summer... Uh, Actually, y'all are spending the summer. Cree Paul is actually on a different sermon series. So uh, some of this is me getting my brain in y'all's world. Walking through the Apostles' Creed and through some passages in Scripture that shed light on the doctrine, because um, that creed is full of doctrine, that is encapsulated in these summary statements of historic Christian faith, uh, things that go back 2,000 years so it's hard to pick individual passages. I've done my best this morning. Um, because these statements, they sum up meta-themes in all of Scripture. Truths that Scripture speaks to and affirms across the pages of Scripture. So the Apostles' Creed, uh, it emerged, a lot of scholars believe, there's some debate about this, but emerged in the second century as a summary of the doctrine that the Apostles taught about God taught about creation, taught about the person and work of Christ, taught about the Holy Spirit. The whole of the gospel and all of scripture is kind of packed into this creed in a few sentences. And for us, what we're really um, kind of stepping in and thinking about this creed and looking at this creed for is to say this, that if you say that you're a Christian, um, this is ultimately what you say you believe about God, about creation, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, that there are a lot of things that we can disagree on uh, even as believers and different interpretations on. Uh, but these, I would argue and say these are the non-negotiables. These are the absolute bedrock statements and realities about what we believe about life and about God, all right? So we're looking at that and saying, okay, that's what's true. This is what we believe because that's what a that's what a creed means. It means to believe something. And why does that matter for us today? So it starts with, the Apostles' Creed starts with, I believe in, and we're going to talk about God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth today, but I believe in. Brant talked about this last Sunday. And I'm going to just remind you of a few things about this. Some of that is to just help me get my head into this. I believe in something, right? We all believe in something, Someone. And the question is, who or what do we believe in? Like we all have, nobody in this room doesn't have faith in something, doesn't have some kind of functional hope or functional trust or functional belief in something or someone. Everyone is religious. Even if you're religious about being irreligious, you're religious about that, right? We have some system, all of us, some creed, conscious or subconscious, stated or not. It's in there that we walk around with. It's the rails by which we run the train of our life on. It's our telos. It's our guide. It directs how we understand and interpret and find meaning in life. 
It brings order. That's what a creed does. It brings order to the chaos of life. It makes sense of life. That's why creeds are so important. It's why we put creeds down in writing, right? Because they're like vows at a wedding day. Or they're like oaths that you take like when you join the church in a moment of sanity. I'm saying, this is what I believe to be true, right? And we need those anchors. I think that's one of the metaphors Brant used last week. We need those anchors that are more ancient, that are older than me, that are older than my family system, that go way, 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 way back, that have been true across the generations. We need those anchors more ancient than my feelings or my circumstances or the cultural fads and moments that we're in, right? We need them because they serve as like a needed backstop. Or like when you go bowling, I promise all my metaphors won't be about bowling today, all right? Those bumpers, you know, when you're, you go bowling with kids, you can ask to put those up, right? Or they, they used to be inflatable. Now they're, I think they're mechanical. Creeds are like bumpers on the bowling lane of life, okay? Kind of keep me moving in the same general direction as I ping back and forth. Because life and life's conditions oftentimes are challenging. There's a lot of suffering in this life, a lot of difficulty in this life. And when things get hard, belief tends to go out the window. Creeds are needed because what I believe, if it's always based on what I feel, it's easy for me to say, yeah, I just don't believe that anymore. I mean, that's what we're encouraged to do culturally right now. That's the moment we're in, right? We're encouraged and supported to believe anything that you want to believe these days. And especially if something gets hard or is kind of cutting against the grain of what you feel, then guess what? Just change what you believe and you don't have to feel that way anymore. Right? Bowl sideways. I mean, think about that. If you went into a bowling alley and you walked in there and someone was not standing at the front of the lane where you bowl down towards the pins, but they were standing there over the side and they were rolling a bowling ball across all of the lanes. You would think that person has absolutely lost their mind, right? Because bowling is like this. You roll it this direction, you try to hit the pins. And if you went up to that person and said, why are you bowling across the lanes? And they said, who are you to tell me what bowling is? I don't, who even can tell you if the pins are the goal of the game, right? Who gets to tell me? Just change what you believe. Believe anything. Well, this believe anything mantra, that's not just you know, 2022, right? C.S. Lewis writes about this in Screwtape Letters, which was published during World War II. If you look at a lot of his writings, most of his writings about evil and about pain and about Satan were all written in this time of war, which is an interesting thing to consider. There was an actual battle going on. This is what he says in Screwtape. Man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to having a dozen incompatible philosophies, which is another word you could use for creeds beliefs. Man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to having a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside of his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon 
not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. This is a senior demon writing to a junior demon about how to convince him to keep basically the patient, the person away from God, right? What's he saying there? He's saying that we are accustomed ever since little kids to having dozens of incompatible creeds dancing together about in our heads. Things that if we actually slowed down and we stopped and we thought about those things or we took them to scripture, we'd realize those things are incongruent. You can't say yes to this and yes to this. They actually don't work together. And Lewis is saying, that's, that's the trick. That's the opportunity. You, you get them to believe that they can actually hold both of those things together. But it goes way deeper than C.S. Lewis in World War II. It's been true. That problem has been true for not just our time or Lewis's time, but we see it all the way back in the passage we're going to look at this morning in the first century. It's really been true since the beginning of time. Right? To believe anything, even if it contradicts with itself. The first century church, in the book of Acts, Paul, in this passage I'm about to read in Acts 17, he confronts the people of Athens who are living in a very religiously pluralistic society. It's much like our time today, right? interesting, even Nashville's called the Athens of the South, if you didn't know that, right? Athens was a religiously pluralistic society like ours today, and he's confronting them on their worship of an unknown God. They actually have an idol and an altar to an unknown God, and the Greeks of the day were afraid of offending any God. You got to work real hard to stay on good terms with God, and there's tons of different gods, so there's tons of different things to do, right? But they were afraid of the fact of what if, we, what if there's a God that we don't even know about, and what if we accidentally offend him? So they're having an unknown God was basically like saying we're going to cover all of our bases, right, any omissions that we might make because we have this, this unknown God that we're also worshiping over here. And Paul, he confronts them, and he finishes this statement that I'm about to read section of scripture by saying, what is unknown to you is not unknown. And there isn't many gods, but there's one God. There's one God, which is the very beginning of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. There's one God, maker of heaven and earth, and he's a father. Okay? So here we go. Acts 17, 22 through 28. Take a sip of my LaCroix. Oh, all right. And I have this in the NIV in here, and it's on the ESV in here, so just follow along. They probably should be pretty close. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the hill of the Aragopagus, which is the hill of Ares, okay? That was the god of war uh, of the Greeks. And so it's kind of interesting. This was a place where they would actually battle out what is religiously true. So he stands up at this meeting and he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. In every way you are very religious. Now that word religious, I'm gonna make a few comments as I read, can literally, it can be a compliment, but more oftentimes the way Paul uses it is it's a criticism. What it really means is you're superstitious 
or you're very spiritual, which you think about it today. We have, I don't know, any time, at least in my lifetime, where everybody's very spiritual, right? Spirituality is very in vogue, right? And he's saying that, you're, I see in every way you're very spiritual, right? For as I walked around, verse 23, and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So here we go. The Apostles' Creed. Kind of chunked in here. This, this part of the Apostles' Creed. The God who made the God, right? One God. Not polytheism, monotheism. There's one God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this. So we start to get to the, the meaning of why he did it. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So therefore, as offspring, if we're offspring, what is that saying? He is our father, all right? So let's go backwards. We're going to, sometimes I can try to make it more confusing than it has to be. We're going to go backwards through this first sentence. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Right? Because that's what Paul's talking about here. Let's talk about maker of heaven and earth first. Right? God as maker. God as creator. Now, we could spend the rest of the time, and there are probably people who are more scientific than I am in here, who could walk us through all sorts of things about old earth and new earth and six-day creation and all sorts of carbon dating. We could talk about how he created. That's not what this passage is talking about, okay? So we're not going to do that. The truth, Scripture does say God created literally ex nihilo, which means he literally created out of nothing. He spoke by his power the world into existence. That's all I'm going to say about that. That's how he did it. Let's talk about why he did it. Okay? Because that's what this passage is speaking to. Why did he make what he made? So when I was thinking about this maker, right? Maker. God is a maker. God is a maker. I was thinking about Nashville. And we are in probably, certainly from where I grew up in small town, Indiana, uh, this is a maker community. This is a maker city. It's a hit maker city. It's a creative community. There are actually, I don't know if you've heard the term maker culture, but that's actually a, a subculture that has an official definition within our overall culture, the maker culture. I think Etsy ultimately was founded on this idea, right? It was a marketplace for makers to get their goods into the hands of people. So, we're familiar with this idea of maker, but let me say this about makers. Even people who don't believe in God 
believe something about makers and creators. And here's what it is. Makers make with meaning. Nobody who's a maker, right, says, I'm just doing it, no, no real reason, no real intention behind it, no real purpose. I just, you know, just making, right? Makers make with meaning. They make with a, with a why. Even that fact, the fact that we have this deep desire, if you are a creative, for there to be meaning behind what you create. If you're not a believer in here this morning, that should serve to help show you that there actually is a God. Your desire for there to be meaning behind what you're creating. Because that's actually a window into a part of the divine imprint on your life as someone who is created to bear the image of God. So if you don't know why that is, that's why. Makers make with meaning. In our world of boutique goods, right? I don't know if you've seen the, the ads. I get ads all the time, Father's Day ads. Get your bespoke box, right? With the axe you'll never use because you don't swing an axe, right? It can be up in the back of your, your truck that never goes off the road as well. <laughs> in our world of boutique goods, there's a story that the maker wants to be told behind what he's made. There's a purpose, there's a meaning, there's an intentionality. I did a deep dive one time on bladesmithing. Yeah, that's his knife creating, right? And if you're into bladesmithing, a knife is not just a knife. You don't go to Bass Pro Shops to buy a knife. When someone sees your knife and they ask you about your knife, here's what bladesmith people say about their knives. Well, this isn't just a knife, right? The blade was made of Japanese steel, harvested from a volcano, <laughs> right? I rappelled down in there. And this handle, it's not just a piece of wood on this knife. This handle was hand-carved from the sapwood of a thousand-year-old sequoia tree, right? And the sheath, it was hand-stitched from a yak's hide procured in Greenland from indigenous natives, right? Every part of the knife has purpose, have meaning. Makers have stories behind their creations. And you don't just use that creation for anything. Like if my kids, I mean, I caught my kids using my hockey, or sorry, my golf clubs as street hockey sticks a few weeks ago. That's not what a golf club is created for, right? This knife that I just told you about, this knife isn't just for anything. It's a special knife. It's been made special. It has a special purpose. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. God is the creator. God is the maker. As the maker probably heard of this concept as well. Creative rights. When you create something, you have rights to that thing that you created, which keeps people from taking something that you have made and doing something with it that is against what you intended for it to be used for, for what you created it for. God is the maker. God is the creator. As Paul says here in that passage, God is the giver, right? Rather, he himself gives everyone breath 
and life and everything else. His heart as maker, as creator, is to give. But he doesn't just give for no reason. As the maker and the giver, he has rights, he has designs, he has lordship. He has authority over his creation. He has desired outcomes. I've given, I've made for a reason, for a purpose. I've made my creation to function in a certain way with me. We get a window into that in verse 28. For in him, this is the, this is the purpose. We were made to live and to move and to have our very being. That doesn't sound like religious, does it? I see that y'all are, that's what Paul says to them, I see y'all are very spiritual. You're very religious. You see what he's saying here? You're not made for religion. You're not made for spirituality. You're made for a relationship with the one who made you. You want to get specific? Before you were in your mother's womb, but definitely when you were in your mother's womb, he knit you together. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, is what Psalms 139 says. I'm not made for religion. I'm made for relationship. I'm not made to serve an unknown God and to worship some unknown God. I'm made to worship the God who I can know and who wants to know me. He made his creation to function with him in a certain way and with one another and with him and in the world we created. That's been the truth since the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, right? In the beginning, what did he create? He created everything, right? Heavens and earth and light and water, plants, right? Aquatic life, animals, stars. But the last thing, the crowning act of his creation, what was it? It was us. It was the only thing he was like, this is real, real good, right? Because we were made to bear his image, we're unique in that way. We dwelt face to face is what scripture said, Adam and Eve, face to face with God and his love and they worked in a created world free from sin and free from brokenness. But right there in Genesis 3, all of that got broke by what? Mankind's sin. And what did Adam and Eve do in that moment and what have we been doing ever since then? I'm breaking the design. That's what sin does. Sin says, I'm going to break the design, the maker's design for my relationship to God and to everything else in this creative world. I'm breaking the vertical relationship with my maker, and I'm going to break the horizontal relationship with every aspect of his creation, my fellow man and everything else. I don't want to be offspring. I want to be God. I want to be maker. I want to be the one who calls the shots. I want to bowl sideways. And no one can tell me I can't do it. Well, that's not what you were made for. You're not made to bowl sideways. His desire, his design was not religion. It wasn't spirituality. It was relationship with him. So he's our maker. He's made us for that. So how does God... Let's keep working backwards through the statement. How does God, the Father Almighty, react to his creations that have basically said, no thanks. I'm going to, I'm going to, I know, I know you're a golf club, but I'm going to play hockey with you in the driveway. 
right? His creation's gone awry. How does God Almighty use his might? Because when you hear the word Almighty, it evokes, I know for me, and it should, a sense of authority and a sense of capacity that God has authority and the ability. He has the might and the right is what we would say. He's just in what he does. He has the might and the right to do what he pleases. So that we were made for this relationship, it's completely broken and it's completely our fault. How does the Almighty use his might? What does he do? Well, what we see in Scripture is just right after the fall, literally after what we've been made for was broken because we broke it. God is already in a position of giving and remaking. Immediately. He could have literally said, yep, you know, you ate from the tree. I told you you'd die. Boom. And he doesn't do it. Someone's going to have to die. That'll come later. So I'm going to be just. But I can't be separated from you. I love you too much. So I've, you've created this huge problem for me. And guess what? I'm going to solve it. I'm going to immediately go back to remaking and re-giving. That's what we see in Genesis 3. Right? He gives this covenant to Adam in Genesis 3.15 where he basically says this. I promise there's one that's going to come, the offspring, the seed that would crush the serpent's head. One day something's going to happen that's going to absolutely undo everything that you just did. Right there, right after the fall, God was on mission to recreate, remake what had been made wrong. Why? What we just read. From the very beginning, he desires relationship. We were made for a relationship. He is committed to us being in a relationship. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will do everything it takes to make that happen. Because you were made for intimacy. That's what he says. He did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. He's not far off from any of us. In him we live and move and have our being. Does that sound distant and cold? No. I'm coming after you. I want you to find me. I want to be that tight. That's how the Almighty, the Maker, uses his might because at the end here in 28 where it says we are of his offspring, he's saying I am almighty and I am maker, but ultimately I am your father. You were made to be my offspring. And I was made to be your father. Now when you hear, it's the last part of the sentence, when you hear father almighty, just in the word father, okay, there's a lot we could say. You could preach about each one of these. So whoever outlined this, I'm kidding. It wasn't you. When I say the word father, it can evoke a whole host of feelings for each of us, right? Thoughts that all of us have individually because of our own experiences with our own fathers or our father figures, authorities in our lives. But it starts, I know I went backwards, it starts with God as father. Not just God as creator, not just God as maker, or God Almighty, but God as Father. 
Because if he's just maker, or if he's just creator, or if he's just God Almighty, those two alone, you could say, okay, you're good at what you do, but I'm still left with the question, are you good? What, what kind of person, being, are you, right? You're good at what you did. I look around the creation, holy cow, wow, but are you good? What kind of father is he? Because my view or your view or your belief about him as father will certainly dictate how you engage with him. How you see him as father will determine how you approach him, whether you do approach him, whether you stay away from him, whether you make sure you get it all right before you come into his presence. When you don't get it all right, you hide from him until you can kind of clean it all up. How you see him as father will determine whether you run away or whether you run towards him as Abba. I believe in God the Father. So you have to wrestle for a second. I mean, what is your view of God as father? I'll give you some of mine. I've had a view of God as God the unhappy dictator, right, who is pretty self-absorbed, and all he wants from me is to just kind of get in line and, and do the right things, but it's really not about relationship. I call that God the unhappy father. He's just kind of generally miffed about me, right? Maybe that's your view of him. Or how about God the distant creator? Like I created you. That's what deism is. I created you and I kind of set you in motion, but I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm here like the wallpaper. I'm not really engaged. I'm the checked out dad. Maybe that's your view of God the father. Or how about God the cruel father? Because there's pain or there's suffering in my life. And if you were really a good father, you would step in and you would do something about that. The most familiar is this, and I think almost everybody I know has struggled with this at some point. God, just like my father, is what we tend to do. I project my experience of my own father onto God, and I say, that must be how you're like. If that's the case, many of you probably don't want to have anything to do with God the Father for that very reason. Because of your relationship with your own Father, that may be very, very loaded and evoke a lot of resistance, maybe distaste, maybe even downright hatred. Or if you had a really good dad, expectations. My own dad treats me better than you do, God. Where are you at? I wish you were more like my father. Well, Scripture tells us this in many places, that if you want to know about the Father, you really want to understand the heart of the Father, you got to look at the Son. That's what Scripture says. Jesus gives us the best window into who God the Father is. If you want to see the Father, you got to look at the Son. And here's what Scripture says about Jesus. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He's the blueprint of the Father. You want to look and understand and know the Father? Look at Jesus. He's the exact representation of his being. And Jesus himself, when he was questioned by Philip in John 14, he says this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Here's what Philip says. Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What is Jesus saying? He's saying everything I'm saying, everything I'm doing, everything that I am is literally the Father living his life through me. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. I'm the exact representation of who he is. So if Jesus is our best window into the heart of the Father Almighty, into the very person and the very nature of the Father Almighty, let's consider for a second, and I'll close, how Jesus teaches people about the Father. Because Jesus was always trying to communicate, always trying to show, model, right? This is who the Father is. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read it, but there's a very familiar parable. Even people who don't go to church and don't know much about the Christian faith have heard the term the prodigal son, right? You know, oh, he's a prodigal son, you know. It's a very familiar parable, but it's a parable in a series of parables about lostness, okay? There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then finally the lost son in Luke 15. And there's a theme that runs through all of these teachings that Jesus does, and it's this. Here's the primary theme. What is lost is very valuable to the one who lost it. And the one who lost it is willing to go to great lengths to find what is lost. Remember, God the maker, God the creator, God the almighty, right? He uses his might to go after what he has made when it is lost. That's the theme. You leave the 99 sheep to get the one. You search carefully late into the night. You light lamps to find the coin. But the one that really reveals the heart of the Father that says it most clearly, who God the Father is, is that final parable, the lost son. The parable of the lost sons is what it should actually be called. Or potentially, the parable of the loving father. It's always interesting to me when we read that parable, everybody's like, I'm I'm that younger one, man. I really went out there and lived wild. Or it's like, mm, I was the perfect Bible kid and I did everything right. I'm the self-righteous elder brother. It's great. We should identify with those things. But the parable is primarily about the dad. Okay? We always are talking about which one are we rather than who is he in the story. In the story, both sons are lost. One's lost in his badness and one's lost in his goodness. One's lost in his rebellion the other one's lost in his self-righteousness, right? But both, the elder and the younger, were far away. They were distanced. They were alienated from the heart of the father. They had a broken relationship with the father for two different reasons, legalism and licentiousness. Both can get you into trouble. But the heart of the father in this parable should go read it this afternoon, is consistent towards both of them. He treats both of them in the same way. In their lostness, his delight was what? In you being found and relationship being restored. Yes, he's a father. Yes, he is almighty. Yes, he is authoritative. But his authority is always clothed in affection. It's always clothed in humility. Go read Philippians 2, 5 through 7. It's what Jesus did. He emptied himself. Even though he had equality with God, it wasn't something to be used for his own advantage, right? He emptied himself and went to the cross. 
So for the younger son, if you remember the story, he basically says, give me all of your money or all the money that's owed to me by you, which is effectively like saying this, I wish you were dead so I could already get my inheritance now. And he goes and he blows it in wild living. And after a while, while he's eating with the pigs, right, he crafts this plan to get back into the house. I'll just come back as a servant because he even treats his servants better than I'm, get, I'm living right now. And how does the father, what does he do? He goes out to him, right, when he was a long way off, if you remember how the story goes. In compassion, he ran to him, which is not something a man would do in that day and age. It was very undignified. And he throws his arms around him and he kisses him way before he can get the sentence of please forgive me out of my mouth, right? His father's grace precedes his repentance. It's not a product of it. And he says, quick, before he can say anything, robe, ring, start the band, kill the fattened calf, it's time to throw a party. Your belonging son isn't lost because you squandered everything. You are my son. It's unheard of grace. It's the father saying, you're my treasure and my treasure is yours. And I could have everything, but if I don't have you, I don't have anything. That's what the father's saying. That's what he does to the younger son. How about the older son? The older son is ticked because he's been the one living right, right? He's been doing it right all the time. And he pouts his way out of the party, and the father has to leave the party, which would have been a huge disgrace to the father as well. It's basically spitting in the face of the feast master. And he refuses to come in. And says things like this, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and you haven't even given me dot, dot, dot. Doesn't sound like he's been slaving for the father, does it? Sounds like he's been slaving for himself. I call that a you for me, right? I did it for you for me. He's a big, he's a giant you for me. It's religious. And yet, what does the father do to the elder son? My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. He says the same thing to the elder son as he says to the younger. The same act of crazy grace. Astounding grace in the face of such disgrace. And he says to him, we have to celebrate. The brother of yours, he was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. What's the story about? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. The sons, you, me, We're prone to treasure what the Father can give us. The Father, he treasures us. Is that the Father you believe in? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. The one who celebrates your return to him. Who does not allow your sin to be the thing that defines your relationship to him. But not by not calling it sin and just saying, we won't call that sin anymore. But by forgiving us of our sin completely at his own expense, at his own disgrace. He bore the shame that was ours. Any other dominating image of God as Father is missing the heart and the truth of the gospel. Any other picture you have in your mind of God as Father, if it's not this one, you're off. A father whose grace and love and embrace comes before we can prove to him that we even understand our wrong and will not do it again. Jesus shows us the heart of the father. 
He's one who goes out. He's one who bends down. He's one who chose to be disgraced, who chose to be humiliated so that his justice could be satisfied. I'll fix the problem between us. That's how he used his might to welcome us home and restore us to right relationship with him. That was what you were made for. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, I pray that this image of you as Father uh, would, would swamp our hearts and minds. Any other image that we have, Lord, and we have good reason to have many, uh, would be overcome with this picture of a tender Father who even after uh, we break your heart in many ways by, by being distant from you, by trying to be Lord of our lives, um, you don't make us pay our way back into your goodness and into your grace. Uh, you welcome us, you clothe us, um, and you promise, Lord, I mean, supernatural things uh, to remake us uh, into your sons and daughters by the powerful work of your Holy Spirit, giving us a new heart, um, a new mind, and a new ability uh, to be in this relationship with you. So I pray for my friends here. I pray for myself. Even on this Father's Day, would you heal our image of you as God the Father if we have a broken one? Would you remind us of the truth that we're your sons and your daughters? And would that give us great hope? Would we see that you used your might in this way? And might it disarm us from being those who want to be God of our lives in order to go back to being your offspring? In your name, amen.